please turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week we saw some pretty fundamental, foundational things about Nehemiah, um, his theology, what he believed about God, what he believed about prayer, that God hears prayer, that God answers prayer, what he, and then what he did as a result of, of prayer. He, he fasted, and then kind of the second part of that is what we get into this morning. Um, Nehemiah has learned of the problems in his hometown of Jerusalem, right? A bad report about Jerusalem, and he has compassion. And he believes that God motivates him to do something, to do something, to not just sit there, to pray, to fast, to action. He's motivated to action, as we'll see. At the close of chapter 1, you can kind of look back there. The end of chapter 1, he asked God, as kind of the closing of this big, incredible prayer, where we learn about his theology, he asked God to give him success and mercy before the king. The king. Basically, the whole known world at the time, King Artaxerxes, the king. He's going to stand, he knows he's going to stand before the king. And he asked God for success and mercy because he was going to get the opportunity sooner rather than later. And he made sure to start with prayer. That's what we saw last week. Now look at chapter 2. We're going to look at the first eight verses today and the rest next week. So let's read through Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in, in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And I said to the king, oh, I'm sorry, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king... Let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the sake, or, and for the house I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, give insight to your word, uh, to us in your word this morning. Uh, we can read this and just look at a conversation recorded in history and be unmoved, but I think there's more, and I pray that you would help us to see the more, help us to see what we can learn and apply for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I mentioned last week, but from verse 1, we kind of see that the story skips a few months. At the end of the last uh, chapter, chapter 1, he hears this bad report and he starts to pray. 
And then um, it's a different month now we've moved into. Probably a span of three or four months have passed since he heard the report. And again, we're not completely sure why this amount of time has passed. Um, We're not sure if maybe he wanted to spend that much time in prayer and in fasting intentionally. And so he was intentionally not sad before the king until this time. Um, It could have been that maybe his role as cupbearer wasn't as necessary for a time being. Maybe the king had traveled to another province during this time and he didn't go with them. Someone else accompanied with him to do that job. We're not totally sure why. Okay. Uh, In the end, again, I'm not sure that that's the biggest point of why. Uh, I do think there's some significance to it, as I'll mention. But I want to kind of move through the conversation here, because that's what we've got. In eight verses, we've got Nehemiah and the king's conversation. And uh, let's work through it together, because I think that there's a lot here that we learn about Nehemiah and his character that we need to learn. So verse 1 says that, he, wine was before the king. He took it to him, which was his job as a cupbearer. And up until this point, he'd not been sad in his presence, it says. So we don't know whether he'd been before the king. Maybe he had been before the king up until this point, doing his normal duties, but he'd just not been sad. He'd not been intentional in showing outward sadness. Some of us can hide that well. Some of us can't. Um, but maybe he was intentional about not showing body language. Um, my guess is though that Nehemiah spent these months in purposeful periodic fasting and in prayer. I think it was an intentional delay. And during that time, he'd probably ask God, maybe a prayer that you've sort of asked in your life at times where you've asked him, Lord, I feel you calling me to something. If that's not what it is, take it away. If it is what it is, confirm it. You guys ever prayed a prayer like that before? Whether it's a big move or whether it's a new job or whether it's uh, whatever it could be. Have you prayed that? Have you said, God, I feel you moving me towards this. Please make it clear. Well, I think that's what Nehemiah was doing. But in this instance, so whether it was intentional at this point or whether it wasn't, the king recognizes that something's going on. He sees the sadness of Nehemiah. And the king responds to him. Look at verse 2. He says, why is your face sad? You're not sick. This has to be a sadness of heart. And and then Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Don't skip over this. This is incredible that the king would respond this way to a servant. That he would be that attentive, attentive to Nehemiah. Just noticing body language, facial expressions. That he would say, what's going on with you? Is everything okay? Why are you sad? I mean, you can look back over the course of human history. Very few rulers in this kind of a situation would have responded this way. I just believe that it was a direct result of the previous months of prayer and fasting. Now, Nehemiah says... I was very much afraid. Why? This thought crossed my mind as I was reading and studying this week. Well, why was he afraid? Isn't, isn't it incredibly positive that the king would even ask? Isn't this kind of the, the, the foot in the door, if you will, for Nehemiah to make his request known? Why would he be afraid 
in these moments? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, according to, to the custom, especially Persian custom of the day, you don't look sad in the king's presence. Like that, that wasn't something that you would do. In, in their eyes, Persians are not a, a group of people that are ruled by the Lord. And so in their eyes, he is God, so to speak. So if you being in the presence of the king doesn't give you joy, what would? And so you're supposed to respond with a smile and a cheerful disposition. And if you didn't, you could lose your job. You could be thrown into prison. You could even be killed because the king is God. And if you displease him, if he thinks that he's not enough for you to be happy, you could be done. So that's one reason why maybe Nehemiah was afraid. I think another reason is Nehemiah had planned, and we'll get to that idea in a minute, he had planned on what he was going to say in this moment. And he knew he was going to be asking the king for some things. And he wasn't sure how the king would respond. So, I mean, basically he's asking the king, can I have a leave of absence from my job? And remember, this was a fairly cushy job. There's security, there's influence, there's a little, some amount of power here. He's going to ask the king who just gave him this job to take a break. The king, again, could respond by taking away his freedom in general, maybe even his life. But Nehemiah trusted the Lord, and he mustered his strength. And look at verse 3, what he says. He addresses the king, and so he says, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So he says, May the king live forever. He's showing respect to authority here. May the king live forever. This was a common compliment in Middle Eastern um, tradition. For, for the king, for people in authority, to royalty. Uh, if you look back through the Old Testament, Bathsheba addresses David this way as king. Daniel addresses King Darius when he's in the pit of the lion with the lions. Darius comes to him in the morning and he says, "Hey, are you still alive?" And and uh, Daniel, Daniel says, "May the king live forever." Okay, so this is a normal custom. It's showing honor and respect. Nehemiah does this, but then he spills his guts, okay? He lets the cat out of the bag. He spills the beans, whatever you want to say. He, he just lays it all out there. He says, how can I not be sad based on what's going on with my people in my home? How can I not? And he explains why it's a big deal. Now, even he mentions his father's graves again, and he does it again later on. And I, I think there's some significance to that. Even in Persian culture, the place where you laid people to rest, um, cemeteries, graveyards, that sort of thing, they were, they were sacred. Even if they didn't believe in the one true God, they were sacred spaces. And so he hears this, and maybe he'll be inclined to say yes. So Nehemiah, for the last several months, has been kind of playing things close to the chest. You know, if you're playing cards, you keep your cards close to the chest so nobody can see what you're doing. But now, he's just laid them all out on the table. He's laying his cards out on the table. He's saying, basically, my life is in your hands. He's standing before the king, 
and he knows his life is in his hands to some degree. But his trust remains in the God of heaven is the phrase that he uses often. And he shares with the king what God's put on his heart. And here's how the king responds. Verse 4, the king says, well, what are you requesting? Again, this is not a normal response from the ruler of this nation. It's not at all, I think, it's probably what what uh, he prayed for, but maybe not what he expected. For the king to hear, I want to leave, you know, I, my my family, my home, my people are in trouble. How could I be not be sad? And then to say, well, what do you need? That's an unusual response from a king. What are you requesting, he says. And then Nehemiah kind of inserts this phrase, which is important. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Could it be that Nehemiah just hadn't thought about what he would ask for if the king responded this way? And that's how he said, why he says, so I prayed really quick. Could it be that he was maybe a little overwhelmed in the moment, standing before the king, making this request? Could it be that he needed just kind of a moment to collect himself? Look at what he does. I think this tells us. What does he do? He stops to pray Again, you're going to see this as a, as a theme of Nehemiah's throughout the book. At every stage when they're sending people out to fix parts of the wall in the next couple of chapters, when opposition comes, they stop to pray. But there's action involved with that. At every point of change or difficulty, Nehemiah prays. And here, I would say even like it is for us sometimes, he just needs a moment to pray. And so he does. And I wonder... Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation like this? Not maybe standing before someone in great power, but where you're in some kind of a situation where you're not quite sure how the outcome is going to play out. And you just very quickly, silently to yourself, you pray. Now, I'm not talking about a timeout at a basketball game where you pray that you'll hit the winning shot. Okay. I'm talking about like, um, Something that really matters in the scope of life where it's like, man, I, should I say this because I may ruin a friendship? Should I say this because this could really impact my marriage? Things like situations that really hold some weight and you, you just stop and you pray. If, if you don't have a habit of doing that, if you're quick to rush in with the next comment, maybe we just need to learn here from Nehemiah. And to just slow down and to stop and pray. Look at Romans chapter 8. These are in your notes, but you can turn there. Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you're in that situation, you're not quite sure what to say and you pause and you pray, look at what happens. Spirit gives you words. He intercedes for you according to the will of God. Luke chapter 12, 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... So he's saying when you get brought in for being a Christian and they're ready to, to rail on you and persecute you, when you're in that situation, verse 12, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. 
For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, I, I don't know exactly what that means, and I, I, exa- you know, specifically in your life, what words he's going to give you in every situation, but the Spirit knows. And he's promised to give that to you, to intercede for you, to teach you what to say. And I think that's kind of what's going on with Nehemiah in this moment before the king. In his quick prayer, silent prayer most likely, the Lord is with him. The Spirit of God is with him. And in the moments when you feel inadequate, maybe inept, maybe afraid, when you pray, the Lord is with you too. And on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit, as we've just seen, is intervening on your behalf, even when you don't feel like you have the words to pray or to say. He gives them to you. He's interceding for you. What a beautiful thing. Back to verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah prays and then the king, and then he answers the king. He's respectful again if it pleases the king. And if your servant has found favor in your sight, here's what he's requesting. That you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah is not trying to deceive the king. He's not trying to, to, to pull the wool over his eyes or pull a fast one on him. He's telling the king exactly what he wants to do. His goal is, I want to go back to Judah and I want to set things right. I want to make it whole. I want to rebuild the walls, build the town back up, put the gates back on. And again, this is where he mentions the father's graves. This was important to him. He said he'd like to rebuild the walls, rebuild the city. And here's the king's response in verse 6. The king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. We're not totally sure why um, he mentions the queen here. I think probably she's mentioned that she's sitting there next to them, just as a way of, like, he has her permission his and her permission and favor as well, both of them. We don't know the time frame here either. It just says when he'd given, when I'd given him a, a time frame. He doesn't tell us what it is. So we're not really sure, but whatever it was, the king was okay with it. And um, he sent, he's ready to send him on his way. Now it's likely, we can kind of infer some things from the text. It's likely that it was a rather short period of time maybe six months, maybe a year, something like that. Um, because the king and the queen were eager for him return, so he wouldn't want to said, well, I'm going to be gone for six years. They probably would have said, mm, I don't think so. So it was probably a shorter amount of time. We do find out later in the book, in Nehemiah 5, that he ends up being there for 12 years in Jerusalem. And he actually is installed there as a governor over that time. And it says that that happened in the king's 20th year. So it's likely that he went and uh, had these efforts for the wall building, completed that, went back to the king. And then the king, maybe recognizing the importance of that city, for whatever reason, sends Nehemiah back as governor over it. Okay, but in this moment, he's probably given him a shorter time and it says that it pleased the king to do so, to send him. So it's cool. It's all good. But it pleased the king to send me. It seems like an insignificant statement, but it's not. And here's why. Ne- Nehemiah's compassionate heart for his people. 
his months of dedicated prayer and fasting, his quick but hopeful prayer that he offers in the conversation, his obvious faith in the Lord, his big vision for the wall-building project, and his wise responses throughout this conversation, all were met positively by the king. And so it's clear in my mind that Nehemiah spent the last few months in prayer and fasting, but also in planning. In planning. Look at verse 7 and 8. If it pleases the king, so the king says, what do you need? I'm fine to send you. What do you need? Here's what it says. The letters, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So Nehemiah knew how approximately how long this project was going to take, and he had planned it well enough that he knew approximately what kind of materials he was going to need. This, this was a spirit-led plan, one that you probably aren't going to come up with just like that. It's, it shouldn't surprise us, though, that Nehemiah went into this with some kind of a plan, because God has a plan. A couple notes, scriptures in your notes to point out. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God always has a plan. Started before eternity, in eternity past, before the foundations of the world with salvation, and he's continuing to work out that plan in your life and in mine and in the world that we live in. It's broken. It doesn't take a genius to see that. But God is still has a purpose in this world, and he's wrapping it up. He's completing it even still. God always has a plan. Proverbs 21, verse 15. The plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So God has a plan, but I think that he wants his people to plan. And for a, a not natural planner like this, I'm learning something this week. Planning is a good thing, as long as it's led by the Holy Spirit. You can make the most detailed plans in the world, but if they're not of the Lord, you will be just as frustrated as anybody. And yet, you're not somehow more spiritual for just shooting from the hip, saying that it's the Spirit's leading. Now, sometimes it is, don't get me wrong, but there's value in planning because we know that God is a God of planning. He's a God of order. We should be relying on the Spirit, but we also need to balance that with planning. There's a, a quote in your notes from Pastor David Gusick that I thought was helpful. Let me read it for us. Sometimes it may seem that God blesses a lack of planning, and sometimes it seems God does a blessed work completely different from the one that we have planned. But in every case, God works through planning. If not our planning, then certainly His planning. As a general principle, God wants to train us up into the work of being planners just as he is a planner. There may be some times when we simply just can't plan for every outcome, but we should never reject planning. Some of us, as I mentioned, may lack natural planning prowess, and yet we should still follow Nehemiah's footsteps and give proper thought and effort and prayer and dedication to what the Lord would call us to do. 
So look back at verse 7. Nehemiah, he's always been respectful and wise, but he's never, he's never been cowardly. And verse 7 and 8 show just how bold and courageous he really was. He wasn't satisfied just for a leave of absence. He, he could have stopped when the king said, what are you requesting? He could have said, well, I just need a break to go and see how things are. But he didn't stop there. He has a list of things that he needs to accomplish his goal. And he boldly, he boldly asked the king to step in and to help. And here's what, here's what he requests. It's no little things. He requests official approval of the project to show the area leaders, right? He needs, uh, a kind of passports to travel freely back and forth so that he's not harassed by other people groups. He's got the king's permission and seal so he can travel freely back and forth. He also needs timber for the gates, for the walls, for the homes. And so he needs permission for, from the king for the people who kind of oversee that. He also needs materials for his own house. Now, if you look back in the book of Ezra, the king has already done this for the temple. He's been very generous to God's people. And you can chalk that up to uh, him being a poor king, and many in a worldly sense would, because he's sympathetic to those who serve under him, and so that makes him weak. But I think this was all part of God's plan. Yes, they were scattered. We saw this last week with the cause and effect. They were scattered. They disobeyed the Lord, and they were scattered. And yet God promises that he will bring them back No matter how far away they are, he will bring them back. And this is partly how he's doing this. I don't think Nehemiah was even trying to take advantage of the king. He's boldly making these requests, but I think he's showing honor and respect. And, And think about this. He's actually inviting the king in to be a part of the work, isn't he? Now, maybe he didn't pitch it that way. He didn't say, king, you can be a part of this great work. But he's actually having him be a part of it. He's providing everything that's necessary to complete this project. It's a worthy work, and the king gets to be a part of it. Look what happens. Look at the end of verse 8. The king granted me what I asked for. He did it. There may have been further discussion. I don't know, but it's not recorded here in the text. He just said, sounds good. Go. And And he did it. He gave him the right passages and seals and letters and all of what he needed, and he went. No, he surely the king answered Nehemiah's request because he asked so nicely, right? Well, he did ask nicely. He was respectful. But I don't think that's the reason. He granted Nehemiah's request because he tricked him, right? I don't think he did trick him. He told him up front what his goal was. Look at the end of verse 8. I think this is the reason. The king granted Nehemiah's request because the good hand of God was upon him. And he says, the good hand of my God was upon me. So even though this is a pagan king, does not bow down to the one true God, does not know God, Nehemiah still understood that God could accomplish his plan through a guy like Artaxerxes. A pagan king. This should help us remember that God can provide for our needs in totally unexpected and unlikely ways. And you can hear testimony after testimony of people, Christians who 
had no hope in a certain situation, oftentimes financial, and then all of a sudden, God comes through. He does that, sometimes in unexpected ways. Nehemiah believed that he could. I think it's interesting that Nehemiah doesn't really reflect too much, on, in the text at least, on, on what this kind of looks like from the outside. Because looking from the outside in on this story, I'm looking at this and saying, this shouldn't have happened. Like the king should not have cared whether Nehemiah was sad or not. He should not have asked him what he needed. And he certainly should not have just granted it to him just like that, just from asking. The, Nehemiah never considers any of these things miracles. But if we look at it, I think we should see some pretty heavy hand of God in this, shouldn't we? For the king to respond with sympathy and generosity is just really unheard of. The first uh, title that I had for my sermon today was, was Prayer and Providence. Uh, maybe that would have actually been a better sermon title, but um, I went with, you can see on your top of your notes, Standing Before the King. But notice that the king is capitalized. Nehemiah was physically standing before the king of Persia, but he was actually standing before the king of everything. And he knew it. So when he's offering that prayer to the king of all, and when he's making his request to the king of Persia, ultimately he knows his hand or his life lies in the hands of God, the true king. Yes, Artaxerxes is used by God at times, but he knew that his life was really in the hands of the one true God and not just any God. Look at the end of verse 8. Not just any God, his God. A good God. I hope you picked up on that. Nehemiah understands that, yes, this, this God is all-powerful. He's requesting these things uh, that God would providentially work. And he knows that that God who can who keeps everything spinning and everything going and providing for the needs of every living creature on the earth is his God. He's personal. He knows him and he's good. This phrase, um, my God is used over 130 times in the old Testament in the same kind of way. The old Testament saints got it. Even without the spirit being like we have, they got it. This God was their God. David got it. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. Listen to how many times he uses the word my. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David got it. And I think there's something really incredible that happens when a person recognizes that they belong to a good God who loves them. Really, I think we understand this to some degree at salvation. Because we've, we've received the gift. We've said, yes, I want this. I want a relationship with you. I want to serve you, to honor you. And we recognize that he has sent his son to die for me. And so it's a, it's a very personal thing in that way. Something incredible that happens when we see God in this way. And look at Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 10 with me again. Just glance back there. This verse emphasized, I pointed this out last week, over and over, 
Nehemiah and the people belong to the Lord. The word his, like ten times there in those couple of verses. Over and over, your people, we are yours. Now in chapter 2, verse 8, Nehemiah emphasizes that God is a personal God. And God is a good God. Personal God who is good. Again, Nehemiah's theology is coming out, isn't it? And it was good. It was spot on. He believed that God heard and answered prayer. And by the end of the conversation with the pagan king of the known world, we all should be convinced that he's right. God does hear prayer. God does move on our behalf. Maybe even giving us words when we don't have the words in our own strength and ability. Two things that I think we can take with us this week and remember. If you want to write them down, I think they're in your notes, but write them down. Think about these things. They're easy. And we learn this from the last verse here, chapter 2, verse 8. The first thing is this. God really does answer prayer. If he can move the heart of a king, he can move your boss's heart. He can move your spouse's heart. Secondly, God really is good. He really is. Uh, we could maybe add a third thing in here, and it's this. A relationship with a God like this, who is good, can be yours. This God can be your God, just like he was Nehemiah's, just like he was David's, just like he was Daniel's, just like he has so many saints, even alive today. He can be your God. And entering into that kind of relationship with, with a good God, it doesn't require you, it doesn't require you to have X amount of hours in church before you can be saved. You don't have to give a certain amount of money into the offering plates or to charitable donations before God will receive you or accept you as his. That's not how you become in a relationship with God like this. Romans 6.23, free gift of God. Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If it's a gift, do you have to pay for it? No. What do you do with a gift? Kids, when you get gifts for your birthday, do your parents say, you can have these gifts, but you first need to mow the grass, unload the dishwasher? No. Hopefully they don't do that. We celebrate you on your birthday because we love you. And we give you gifts because we love you. And all you have to do is receive them. And say thank you. And the same should be done when it comes to the free gift of God as eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We just receive it. Brothers and sisters, you don't work for it. You don't think that you can take it and then you have to log so many hours of good deeds. That's not how it works. You will, your life will be about good deeds. But that's not how you maintain your salvation. It's a free gift and so you don't work for it. You simply receive it and say thank you. And so I'd encourage you today, receive this gift. It's a gift that's freely given. Receive it. Receive Jesus today. And when you do, the good God that Nehemiah is talking about becomes your God as well. 
and he leads you into righteousness for his name's sake. Let's pray. Lead us in this way today, Lord, into righteousness. Lord, if we know you, I pray that we would remember these simple things this week, that you really do answer prayer. We see it here in this situation. We see incredible things happen because of prayer. And also, Lord, I pray that we be reminded this week that you are a good God. You're, You're good. Even in situations where we don't see it that way, we trust in your sovereign plan. That you not just see down through the corridors of time and how everything is going to play out, Lord, but you're sovereign over those things. You rule over those things. You ordain things. And so, Lord, maybe today you've ordained it that someone would hear this message of salvation, of a free gift. And I pray if that's the case, Lord, that they would respond not with good works because those don't save us, but with faith. Because of your grace, Lord, we can respond that way. And so I pray that you would grant repentance to those who need it. And that you might increase our faith. I pray that you would help us to remember these things. That you really do answer prayer and that you really are good. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.